0: Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to the epistle of uh, 1 John, John's first epistle, chapter 2. We'll look at verses 20 through 28 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there are some available in the back, or um, it's printed in the bulletin for you. Um, we are going to look just a little bit at the context outside of what's printed in the in the bulletin. So if you had a Bible, it's helpful. But, um, so we're starting today a new series on uh, the Trinity, which I think some of you uh, know about already. Some of you might even be excited about to some degree. Uh, I've been tremendously excited about it. Um, just kind of answer the question, why a series on the Trinity? Doesn't it seem kind of like s- such basic information that uh, Maybe either it's going to be incorporated in, into pretty much everything we do already or it's just kind of humming there in the background and um, doesn't really need too much attention because clearly it's fundamental to the Christian faith. Uh, why a series on the Trinity? Um, circumstantially speaking, uh, it's kind of come about because the, the last sermon series that we did, we looked at worship. And um, uh, I was helped a lot by that series. And uh, if you were or... Don't know the series. You missed some sermons or whatever. There are actually some CDs available um, for free, just that have all the sermons on them, uh, MP3 uh, versions of that, uh, on the book table. But uh, basically, we looked at worship uh, primarily in light of the fact that it's trinitarian. That um, that everything that we do in worship has to do with our God being a Trinity: a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, in a sense, you could say that the the Trinity series started with a precursor series on worship Um, and it was interesting I was reading a book by Fred Sanders Uh, it's one of the books that we'd recommend to you uh, as we're kind of plunging into the series on the Trinity Fred Sanders wrote a book called the deep things of God and in it he talks about um, the fact that uh, sometimes people become um, familiar with the Trinity in a way that they're not really explicitly aware of So that eventually when they uh, turn their minds to think about the Trinity and they actually dive into the the doctrine, if you will, but I mean, just thoughts and reality about who God is uh, from the scriptures, then um, they've already got kind of some of these resources in place so that it kind of makes sense the more they think about it, right? Um, And he says that with regard to Christians, of course, um, and, and especially those who are in churches, especially even those who are in churches that have liturgies like ours, Uh, He says that you can learn a lot about God, the Trinity, uh, the more you study a liturgy like this one, the the order of service, the things that we do. And I found that that was true. Um, I found that was true for myself. Uh, The more that we studied worship, the more personally I was caught up in uh, a greater vision of God as triune. And um, and then alongside of that, uh, providentially, Coincidentally, some might say, but providentially, God has ordered this. uh, So somebody recommended—I can't even remember who recommended it—the book by Michael Reeves, "Delighting in the Trinity," and read that, and uh, it was great. And some of us have read it in home group and enjoyed it. Um, But kind of learning more about who God is and how the Trinity works—I mean, it's it's fascinating stuff. Um, So that's kind of the, the circumstantial you know, what led us to this point this Sunday, talking about the Trinity for the rest of the summer, at a deeper level maybe, um, might say a more th- theological level, um, uh, God's the foundation for everything in the world, right? God himself, he's the one who made the world, um, he made it in a way that makes sense according to who he is, He right? You wouldn't make something that was uh, not in accord with his nature, so God is the foundation for everything in the world, especially He's the foundation for everything in the Christian life. As we're drawn closer to uh, a relationship with him, um, we become more and more aware of the fact that he is ordering our lives in a way that's in accord with his own nature. And the, the, the essence of his nature is triune. He's, he's one God in three persons. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, it got kind of blow your mind a little bit. But, uh, but that's who God is. God is a being in communion. God is a being in relationships. And because he is that, the world came about, right? He created the world. And because he is that, he is reconciling us to himself. Um, and so uh, everything that God has made traces back to who he is, um, that he's a God of love, that he's a triune God. It's especially true of our lives as humans. Every, every human that God has made especially reflects who he is because he's created us in his own image. And, um, and even more true, I think, of uh, humans who are being refashioned into the likeness of uh, Christ's image in the church. So um, everything traces back to who God is. And he's a God of love. He's a triune God. And so God's triune nature is the foundation for reality. That's the foundation for everything. And it changes the way that we think about everything. So through this summer, then we'll look at uh, really just a few of the aspects of the Christian life that... Um, that are kind of explicitly told to us in light of God's nature as a triune being. So, um, yeah, glad you're along for the ride. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll read uh, from First John. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that uh, we learn about you through your Son, who is the word, and through this written word that we have in our hands. And we confess and we pray, we need your help uh, to understand your word, to understand anything about who you are. You have to uh, make us new. You have to renew our hearts and our minds, and we know that you do that through your Holy Spirit. Um, So we pray for uh, the filling of your spirit now as we encounter your word, and we pray to be shaped by it so that we would become uh, more and more like Christ, who is our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. 1 John 2, starting in verse 20. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, it's it's tremendously difficult for me to try to determine where to start in a series on the Trinity. Uh, We're actually not kind of starting at the beginning. And I might not give you the explanations that you want for quite everything. We're actually starting more toward the end, in a sense. The end in the the sense of the purpose, uh, the goal um, for our creation and for our redemption. Uh, Hopefully it'll come across what that is as we uh, go through the text this morning, but um, we will look at our creation, we'll look at the beginning, and we'll look at our redemption um, the way that uh, God, being triune, has worked to save us and reconcile us to himself uh, in light of the Trinity, then w- uh, we'll look at those things. But this morning, we're looking um, at it at what's the core of our faith? It's it's the thing that we profess that um, that is probably most important. It's the relationship that we have with God, right? the relationship that we have with God as He has revealed Himself to us. It's it's the thing to which we cling in this life that carries us through this life, right? And that is, um, it comes through this text in terms of abiding in him, right? Abiding in him as he has come to us. And that's relational terminology, I understand. Uh, it's really hard to describe what it's like to have a relationship with somebody who you can't see. Um, but, uh, but that's what it is. It's relational, it's abiding in God. And that is, uh, that's what we have to cling to in this life. There are plenty of things around us and inside of us that threaten that relationship and so we need a vision of that relationship uh, a vision of our triune God that anchors us in that relationship Um, so it was uh, again I had nothing to do with it but providentially we sang be thou my vision just now didn't we be thou my vision and um, that's our prayer and that's what we need and that shows up um, here the fact that that uh, things around us and things uh, even among us or even inside of us are threatening that relationship, threatening to pull us away from abiding in uh, the Trinity. And that shows up in the context. So we didn't read, I'll back up just a couple of verses, in verses uh, 18 and 19, we didn't read this, but um, just very briefly to give some context, John is uh, saying to the, the people who are the recipients of this letter, he's saying, children, it is the last hour impossible to briefly describe what he means by that, but basically it means um, we're in the time of the end. It's been a really long time of the end, uh, but he talks about it in terms of the last hour, right? Uh, it's, it's generally speaking that the time between um, Christ's first coming and his second coming. So um, he says, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming— I'm not even going to get into that, like what that means. So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. It's something that Jesus had said. They went out from us. So these were people who were like in the church, right? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. This idea of persevering with uh, the community of faith, persevering in faith, um, which is a mark of those who are truly children of God. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. Yeah, again, hard to describe everything that's going on here, but basically these are opponents. These are opponents to the gospel, opponents to who God is, to who Christ is, really even opponents to the church because of that. And uh, they had gone out from the church so that it might become plain that they're not part of the church. Because otherwise, sometimes it's hard to understand, it's hard to discern whether somebody's really in line with the truth, somebody's really advocating for uh, the true gospel. But these people left so that it would be shown... uh, clearly that uh, their message is different from ours they're not one of us uh and we've had folks leave the church (laughs) for various reasons uh some better reasons than others but as far as i can tell none of their departures have proven them to be antichrist so just so you know that's not what i'm talking about this morning it's like those people who just left don't listen to them at all don't hang out with them uh no that's not it at all um but here's what he's saying. In, in light of this challenge to their faith, in light of the challenge to uh, staying in relationship with the one true God, the way that he has revealed that, that we should be in relationship with him, uh, he has to encourage them, right? And he says, but you, not uh, unlike them, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. And in John's Gospel, chapter 6, Jesus is called the Holy One. This is Jesus, he's the Son of God. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons forever. The Son of God came into the world, became a man, uh, didn't stop being God, but became also a man, and his name was Jesus. And he is the Holy One, and you have been anointed by the Holy One, it says. And so, therefore, you you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. What these people are saying is not of the truth, and you know that because you've been anointed by the Holy One. Who's the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So, what does that mean? The one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the one who denies that the Father, uh, he denies the Father and the Son. Well, the Christ. The word Christ, we usually think of it kind of as Jesus' last name, um, which it's not. It's a title, right? It's like his office. It's like a a designation of honor. Um, And it means anointed one. Very specifically in his case, it means the one who's anointed by the Spirit. Jesus is the Spirit-anointed one. It says in, uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 1, it said, John the Baptist bore witness he said I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him it abided on him the spirit re- remained it abided on Jesus the son he who sent me to baptize with water and he's talking about the father he who sent me to baptize with water said to me he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain or abide this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is a Trinitarian statement from John the Baptist in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 32-34. The Father said, when you see my Spirit descend on my Son, that's the one who anoints with the Holy Spirit, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So Michael Reeves uh, says in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, John wrote his Gospel... He tells us in John chapter 20, So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Spirit-anointed one, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But even, this is continuing uh, Michael Reeves' quote, But even the most basic call to believe in the Son of God is an invitation to a Trinitarian faith. Jesus is described as the Son of God. God is his Father. And he is the Christ, the one anointed with the spirits. When you start with the Jesus of the Bible, it is a triune God you get. So in Jesus' baptism, we see, for the first time, probably clearly revealed, God is triune. In his baptism, you see or hear the three persons of the Trinity distinct from one another. And the incredible thing is um, you see or hear them distinctly. It's one God. Um, the Father, at Jesus' baptism, declares his love for the Son and anoints him with the spirit of love, pours the oil of gladness upon him, just said in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, and as he lavishes upon himself the, the spirit of love, And that's captured in his name, or his name and title, Jesus the Christ. Jesus, the Spirit-anointed one. Jesus, the beloved Son of the Father. And Jesus himself links anointing and the Holy Spirit in Luke 4, where he quotes, and he he takes to himself this this quote that we read in uh, our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 61. He says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. And he says in verse 3, to grant the oil of gladness. I've been anointed with the Spirit in order to anoint with the Spirit who is the oil of gladness. It's the, the love of God himself poured out on people. So God the Son says that God the Father has anointed him with God the Spirit in order to anoint you with God the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you as it says in our text, have been anointed by the Holy One. By Jesus, the Spirit anointed with His own anointing, with His own Spirit. And so you have knowledge. You have relational knowledge of God, right? You know the truth because the Spirit is in you. Because you've been anointed, the Spirit is in you. You know the truth. And... um, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. It's, that, it's the same word as Christ, basically. the same root word as chrisas. Um, God has anointed us who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Right. So if you're a Christian, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God then you are, as Fred Sanders says in his book, you are already immersed in the reality of the Trinity. You are already immersed in the reality of the Trinity. It's like a man, Fred Sanders says, who found a treasure hid in a field that he didn't have to buy because he already owned it. You've got the triune God already, if you're a Christian, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ. So don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Right? the Antichrists that John's talking about here. Um, because Antichrist, what does that mean? Just the word, take the word apart. What have we been talking about? What does Christ mean? It's the spirit anointed one. He's the spirit anointed son of the father. So Antichrist is one who's appointing the spirit anointed son of God. Uh, he's, 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 a, did I say appointing? <laughs> he's opposing, right? Uh, he's opposing the spirit anointed Son of God, he's opposing the incarnate Son. He's opposing Jesus come in the flesh, right? And um, and so we know, not just because First John tells us, we know about false teachers, uh, lying teachers who seek to um, get us to disbelieve in the Trinity. Right? People who would make themselves out to be Christians who don't believe in the Trinity, don't believe in Jesus' full divinity and full humanity in one person, um, and they seek to convince others, of like who? Unitarians, right? There's one God, and he's monopersonal. There's no no three persons, right? Unitarians teach one God, not three persons, Uh, like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses who come to your door. and their message is, is one of death, right? They're really nice people. They're really nice people. Um, but their message sucks eternal life away from, from people, right? Because it's, it denies who God is. It says in verse 23 of our text, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And this means whoever confesses Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of the triune God, who's anointed by the Spirit, that's the one who has the Father. You have God if you confess the Son. Uh, the Athanasian Creed, which is, um, there's a little bit of it put in the beginning of your bulletin there as, as a quote. Uh, it starts off this way. It says, Whosoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. And that ca- the word Catholic means universal. That's the, the, what the word means. Um, before all things, it's necessary that he hold the Catholic or universal faith, which faith except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. So if you have the Catholic faith, you'll be saved. If you don't have the Catholic faith, you'll perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. And he goes on, uh, They, whoever it is that wrote the Athanasian Creed, it wasn't Athanasius, he lived maybe a couple hundred years before this came out, but um, they go on to expound, then, the Trinity, right? To some degree, giving you some kind of understanding of what it is you, you profess when you, um, when you proclaim Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also proclaiming the Incarnation, right, the Athanasian Creed, the last half of it maybe uh, talks about uh, the incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, coming into the world for our salvation, becoming actually, truly, in every way human, uh, along with his uh, divinity. So, so this is the litmus test, right here at the beginning of the Athanasian Creed, and all of our creeds, really. Are they of us or not? Do they confess and hope in Jesus, the Spirit-anointed Son of God, come in the flesh? Come as a human. Do they profess that? Do they? Um, if, if you hold the Nicene Creed in front of people who come to, the, to your door, or if you're engaged with people in your workplace who might be Unitarians or something, I, you know, if you hold the Nicene Creed in front of them, do they believe it? Even the Apostles' Creed, it's just like the most simplified, streamlined. Uh, if you believe this, you're a Christian, and it's Trinitarian. Right, The whole structure of it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all of our theology flows from that concept. That's the root of our faith. That's the root of our confession. What do people think of that? Ask them. The ancient creeds, um, being Trinitarian, they provide Christians with a basis for theological thought, but maybe more crucially, it's a basis for our understanding of our life in God. It's not just abstract intellectual stuff, academic stuff. It's a basis for our life with God. The divine life of God has been opened up to you. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible's about. The divine life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been opened up to you, and you have been made, as Peter says in 2 Peter, you have been made partakers of the divine nature. And so... um, So it seems almost like a silly thing to command you to abide in that, which is what John does here in his letter. I mean, isn't it incredible? Isn't it captivating? Isn't it your highest joy to contemplate your union with God who has opened up his life to you? Verses 24 and 25, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. So considering what you've heard, abiding in, remaining and dwelling in, the good news about who God is, about who Jesus is, and about what he's done for you, his career of love and sacrifice in order to bring us to God, considering that and abiding in that message is what lifts you up to dwell in God the Son and in God the Father. And that is eternal life. Right? It doesn't just lead to eternal life. And eternal life is not just a, it's a, it's not a great quantity of life, right? It's describing the quality of life that we have. Intimately knowing God is eternal life. And that's what Jesus says in His prayer in John 17. He's praying to His Father, and He says. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the Spirit anointed one whom you have sent. Right? This is the purpose for which you were created. This is the purpose for which Christ came into the world to redeem you. And Thomas Aquinas says that the purpose and fruit of our whole life is the knowledge of of the Trinity in unity. That's not to say the knowledge of the Trinity who are one in unity out there. It's the knowledge of the Trinity in unity with ourselves. Us being united to the triune God is the purpose and fruit of our whole life. Theologians throughout the centuries have called this deification is a scary word because it brings to our mind uh, thoughts of us being made substantially divine. And that's not what it's talking about. The doctrine of deification or theosis is the doctrine of humanity being caught up into the divine life, into the place of the Son of God, enjoying the relationships of the Trinity in the very place of the second person of the Trinity, the Son. So, being in the Son in such a way that as the Father is in the Son, so the Father is in us. And as the Son is in the Father, so we are in the Father. It's knowing the Trinity in unity, in communion with the God. So this is intimate and spiritual knowing. It's spiritual in the sense it's through the Spirit. That's how we have a relationship with God. Uh, that's how we have communion with the Father and the Son. And that's the essence of eternal life. Right? Which comes from abiding in the word of the gospel of grace and abiding in the Holy Spirit, the text says. Right? That's the quality of life given as a gift. It's a free gift. You could never do anything to earn it. And that's what drives people to give up everything in their lives and go on a mission field. It's what sustains people when their children are sick or their grandchildren are sick. It's what keeps people as they die is eternal life, communion with God, knowing God, being in God through the Spirit. That's eternal life. John says in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So these truths that he's writing are to safeguard you to keep you in the Son and the Father, because that's where your life is. He says in verse 27, continuing, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. So the Spirit, right? The Spirit abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Because that's what these teachers say, right? Let me enlighten you. Let me let you in on a little secret, on some special knowledge that you don't have because you only read the Bible. You've got to have these other books. But you don't need that because the Holy Spirit abides in you. And His anointing, the Holy Spirit, teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Stay there, remain, dwell in God. And... uh, This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was foretelling when he said in John 15, when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness. Because that's the Spirit's job is to bear witness about the Son in a way that connects us to the Son so we have fellowship with the Father through him. And Jesus sends the spirit to teach us everything because he's the spirit of truth and that same spirit then compels us to teach others the truth, compels us to bear witness about the son of God Um, in Acts chapter 10, Peter is in Cornelius' household, uh, this is a Gentile's house, this is kind of the beginning of people starting to freak out like this thing's getting too big for us, it's out of our control right, the Jews are kind of Frightened by the fact that, no, this, this message of good news is for everybody in the world, including these Gentiles. He's, he's preaching the gospel, and he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. And while and he's preaching the gospel, while Peter is still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And they're amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. The same Holy Spirit with whom Jesus has been anointed, we have been anointed And he teaches us about Jesus. And every time that you see that the disciples are filled with the Spirit in Pentecost, what do they do? They bear witness about Jesus. They're filled with the Spirit, and they're granted boldness and love and courage to proclaim the gospel of the Son of God. So the Spirit, who is true, he abides in you, and he teaches you about the Son. He even teaches you and strengthens you to proclaim the Son. And so you have no need of the special secret knowledge Of antichrists who deny the Trinity, who aren't leading you further up and further into that divine life that's been opened up to you by God's grace. John says later in 1 John in chapter 5, the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Again, it's John uses language of the Spirit that is kind of non-standard when we think of persons, right? He calls him the anointing. He calls him the testimony. He calls him the truth of God. So whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony. He has the Spirit in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him, the testimony, the Spirit, a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. So this this is how you understand the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit right calling the spirit of truth who is the testimony of god the father concerning god the son calling him a liar by denying that jesus is the christ that jesus is the spirit anointed one and now <clears throat> little children as our text closes uh, abide in him abide in jesus we've been uh, abide in the whole trinity in this text but abide in jesus so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Because he's coming again, right? One day, the heavens will open, and with the sound of a trumpet, the Lord Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. That means to judge you and me, and to welcome his people into the everlasting kingdom of love. One day that's gonna happen. How do you think about that day? When do you think about that day? <clears throat> what do you think? What do you feel? Do you fear it? Do you wish it would just be prolonged a little bit? Do you get anxious about it, nervous? Do you worry that your heart will sink and that you'll want to shrink away from him? Or do you abide in him now? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do you seek him in the scriptures? Which is what this text is about. Abide in his word. Abide in the message that you've heard from the beginning. Do you seek him in the scriptures? And in prayer? Do you meditate on the word of the gospel? Do you meditate in the spirit? In the love of God? Do you imagine standing in your kitchen with your spouse and hearing that unmistakable loud trumpet and looking at one another and saying, finally, finally the Lord, finally the new beginning of all things. Finally, we see him face to face, the one that we know already because we abide in him and he in us. Do you know what it means to abide in the triune God in such a way that makes the prospect of the Lord's return joyful? One that gives you confidence. Do you have that kind of relationship with him? Is your faith in Jesus, the Spirit-anointed Son of God, coming to live in the flesh for you, come to die for you, raised from the dead by God's power for you? Then you do have that relationship by his grace. You've been brought in to God himself. Everything is yours because God is yours and you are his. Amen. let's pray. Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend even so. It is well with my soul. Amen.